Elias, it's so great to sit down with you about Ownership Matters. Um, just, you know, this this issue strikes me, maybe it's helpful, like, it's, there's a reawakening article here that Julia offered, one of our contributing editors, about just the situation in China with kind of a genocide, but U.S. companies being, you know, very much supporting. Give us a little bit of landscape of that article and what we're learning about here. Yeah, this is a very personal article for her. She went to Europe to study for her graduate degree and met a... Um, a scientist who is a Uyghur expatriate, and that friendship was very eye-opening for her. Mm -hmm. And tying it into our interest in understanding ownership and the responsibilities of ownership, she volunteered to do an article, a short interview uh, with this man, and she used that to sort of foreground the efforts in this country uh, around disinvestment with um, uh, certain corporations that are doing business that involved the Uyghurs and their situation. I have to admit, I didn't know a lot about it. And I wondered if maybe the word genocide seemed like a lot. And then I read the UN's definition of genocide and a, a bigger description of the kind of cultural suppression that's going on in China. And I saw that indeed it, it does fit their situation, which is pretty dire. So Julia did a great job just alerting us to sort of broad outlines of the issue. And she actually has done some human rights work in her graduate study. So she was kind of uh, alerted to this situation uh, now for several years, in fact. I'm so grateful. I mean, it's a, it's a moment of encountering some of those that are most on the periphery that like when you empathize with what's happening here in this kind of forced labor conditions, and then yeah. to see some of our name brands, Apple, Coca-Cola, Nike, Microsoft, supporting action in our U.S. Congress it really um, helps implicate again, which I think to me is just a reaffirmation of some of the underlying problems in mainstream economics and some of our mainstream yeah. finance. Um, so thank you for complicit us there. In terms of reimagining the future, um, uh, there's also some trends in mainstream startup finance. You do your opening to the to the issue here really doesn't yeah, so bad of, news. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would give us give us the context though. You did this great article about 80 text. I, I have no idea, really. I have not been watching this carefully, but it was an article in the New York Times just a couple of days ago on the tech startups last year, or no, sorry, back in 2015, there were 80 tech startups with billion-dollar valuations. Last year, over 900. Crazy. The New York Times piece calls it crazy, a frenzy, froth. Um, it mentions in the article that Apple, the evaluation of Apple has now topped three trillion. So there is something that is partly post-pandemic, uh, pandemic-driven, which is this push, this bonanza into tech-enabled areas like food delivery, remote work, and so on. And so that's that's part of what's going on. But it means that last year, startups raised double what they did the year before. So the number is now $330 billion. And the um, pitch book says the value of the exits uh, last year, whether it's a sale or as a public offering, spiked to $774 billion. So those are numbers that are just, you know, down here in the solidarity economy, um, we, I, I compare it to like pitching a pup tent in the middle of a, a category seven hurricane going on over our heads, right? So it's, it's enough to be very discouraging, but at the same time, it's enough to remind us we're, we're going to have to make the solidarity word mean something. 
Yeah, no, it reminds me of a conversation I was having with a bunch of cooperative capital practitioners around how we need our own kind of infrastructure to support, like you mentioned, Y Combinator here and all the name brands, like what's our infrastructure support yeah. co-ops. Um, one thing, Molly, uh, a serial entrepreneur you interviewed here, Molly Hemstreet from the Industrial Commons, this is such a ray of light to me of oh, like yes. how how high integrity some of these new cooperatives are and, and, and how they're knitting together fabrics of whole communities. Give us a little taste of Morganton, North Carolina, where Molly works and yeah. um, what's happening there. The industrial commons. This is a, an amazing woman with a very big vision and she has been working on it for a while. It, it is becoming real and it is getting bigger, but it is also in, in many ways, I would say maybe every way, it is keeping the integrity of what she originally was about here. So in a way, <clears throat> she is like our uh, domestic example of a kind of Mondragon in the making, as close as anything we've got. But at the same time, she is very, very focused on workers. She is focused on, for example, the community of Mayan uh, workers that she has in that part of Western North Carolina. And that workforce and enabling them educating them, collaborating with them is a major focus of what she's doing. So that in some ways, her work is not only about worker co-ops in the usual kind of commercial sense, it is also about social co-ops because she is so much about well-being and the importance of well-being in the, in the kind of new economy we uh, want to see emerge. That's so helpful. I mean, I'm glad you also pointed to kind of their learning journey, kind of uh, armchair tour of the world that I was privileged to kind of oh, yeah, visit the, the yeah. Quebec tour. I mean, I think yeah. that social, we have so many other parts of the world that have this social economy enterprise, Quebec, Mondragon, Northern Italy, um, you know, other places as well. I, my sense is she's she's trying to offer some of that, but also there's a lot of pushback in the kind of rural America culture she's around. I don't know if there's any other pieces you want to highlight um, from your conversation with her about some of the, the housing cooperatives, the collaborations with other kind of uh, workforce-driven enterprises, both at Emma and Valdez Weavers that are employee-owned. Anything else you want to highlight about that important work? Yeah, I, I think it's just impressive the way in which she navigates through that kind of rural landscape, avoiding all the kind of obvious dumb politics and, and focusing instead on something that everybody agrees on. And you know, if you're in a part of the country like Western North Carolina or where I am in the Rust Belt, you can get a lot of agreement that people need to be employed, they need to be employed well, and they need to have you know humane workplaces. And she just keeps driving that and it just keeps working. So it, she's an inspiration you know, on a big scale. You do a great um, review of The Economics of Arrival by Trebek and Williams. Give me just a, a preview of that incredible book and kind of where coming in for landing yeah. kind of lands. Yeah, I think this is a little bit in Molly's vision too, the idea of arriving and what is sufficiency, what is enough, you know, what is growth for the sake of growth and all of that. And so, um, you know, the, the, the authors are trying to talk about how we get beyond GDP and they talk about many other measures of GDP having to do with well-being. And I thought I was struck by the fact that they actually cited two real-world examples where you could say there are societies that have, in some sense, arrived. They're not constantly, in other words, they're way past takeoff. They've flown the plane, and now they've come down, an idea that we haven't figured out how to talk about. But the authors say in the case of Costa Rica and in the case of Japan, you have societies that are not really all about 
growth for its own sake, neither, or I should say Costa Rica is not necessarily pursuing growth in the same way. And Japan has had kind of a stalled economy, according to some people, for maybe a couple of decades now. And yet, with very little growth, it has not fallen apart. It is still a leading economy in the world today. And that's a very striking kind of macro indicator. Costa Rica is simply a place where people have agreed as a community that well-being is up at the top of their list. And so they are quite happy with where they are in the world. They're not trying to do something uh, expansive or, or aggressive beyond that. And the result is that people seem to have, by all the indicators that have been developed, um, a very high sense of their own uh, uh, public health, mental health, and well-being. Wow, thank you so much, Elias. One piece you that's kind of struck me, I haven't done a deep dive on DAOs, but in yeah. terms of the opportunity for blockchain and co-ops, give us a little opportunity, yeah. what you see here and what Robert I, and Peter. I gotta tell you, man, I'm just gasping to keep up with this stuff. <laughs> Distributed autonomous organizations. It's one of these you know, tech concepts that it basically means that it's like you and I and our friends, we get together, we create our own, not only our own organization, but our own value down to the point of even currency hmm. and, and, and tokens that we consider currency within this little private universe. So the, the point of this for co-ops is the, the power, the sort of DIY power in being able to do this without reference to other larger organizations and entities around you. And, and the question uh, has to do partly with governance. Co-ops are about a very horizontal kind of organization. And these um, DAOs allow for a very high degree of automation in governance. Essentially, you can run your DAO off your phone and use your phone to vote and all the rest of it. And so there are some very interesting questions as to whether the culture of co-ops which is much more kind of sort of grassroots and political and not part of the technocracy. Can that be married up to these um, hyper-technical organizations which exist in, in hyperspace, cyberspace, and are don't come out of the same political universe. They come out of a much more libertarian universe. So it's kind of trying to marry technocracy and, you know, um, hippie cooperativism. And, that, and that's an interesting conversation. It's kind of a small one right now. Um, but, you know, Nathan Schneider and other friends of ours are saying it's something maybe we ought to be watching because there could be some uh, hybrid uh, benefits from this. I love it. I mean, just one tangible example from the Community Purchasing Alliance, Boris, my colleague, was just reflecting on how their organization has adopted Lumio, um, a worker cooperative out of New Zealand that has built a decision-making platform for everybody can vote uh, very easily on all kinds of proposals. And there's also kind of, it creates the horizontal culture that I think the Rochdale principles embody. But he said, we've had so many new proposals by so many of the workers in the co-op, and it just has facilitated a genuine sense of democracy and agency and a purpose. So I'm excited for, you know, these self-governance these new theories in leadership and management that I think are catching on more broadly, how blockchain can facilitate more of that. So I'm so grateful for your attentiveness. Um, and just, you know, the upcoming event here, February 10th, profile kind of what uh, what Nonprofit Quarterly is doing to Black Food Sovereignty. Oh, yeah, yeah. They have a program coming up. Let's see. Um, basically, they've got three or four uh, entrepreneurs in this space that are going to talk about 
you know, what does food sovereignty have to do with the urban farming uh, movement? And does that have anything to do with black farmers in rural America? Is there a synergy there? You know, um, what, what sort of progress do they uh, estimate that they have made? And what do they need in order to enable uh, scaling up? What, what do nonprofits and philanthropy need to do in order to help uh, boost this work? So it's gonna be an interesting conversation. Well, Elias, thank you so much for your diligence and in producing issue after issue here. We're in our second year, um, and I think it may be just helpful to remember that like part of our initial aspiration here was to invite more funders and also the founders uh, of enterprises that are trying to embody solidarity in our economy. How do we invite them to see more of the contours of what's evolving? So uh, I know you're constantly looking for for new examples, new folks to review. Um, anything that's shaped inside of you as you've kind of been so diligent this past nine months, what what's, what uh, what has this meant for you personally? I'll tell you one thing it's meant, and that is a kind of sense of reassurance that in the in the storm and all the bad news, it is absolutely wonderful, the people that are doing such good work. And 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 the only frustration is that quite a few of them haven't met each other yet. <laughs> but we're working on that. And that's part and so, of our hope here at Ownership Matters is to join the community. Our, our motto, find the others. Wonderful. Well, Elias, thank you so much for this rich conversation today. Thank you, Felipe. Good to talk to you.